I wonder if you've seen the rock in my neighborhood. It's on the corner of Yorkchester and uh, Indian Creek Road. It sort of stands there underneath a magnolia tree. It's sort of large and, and rectangular, and there's a hole right in the middle of it. I've always wondered why that rock is there. When you, when you see it there, you, you realize it's not just a natural formation. Somebody found that rock. Somebody stood that rock up there. Somebody put it there for a reason. And one of these days, I'm going to get up the courage to ask my neighbors why that rock is actually... You thought I was going to tell you, didn't you? <laughs> one thing, though, when we see a rock like that, we, we know somebody put it there. And as I read through the book of Joshua again this week, I read through in the message in Eugene Peterson's translation, and I was taken again by how many rocks there are in the book of Joshua. At significant moments, again and again, the people would stack up stones as commemorations and reminders of significant spiritual events. And we look at that perhaps as we read the book of Joshua and think, well, they they were so primitive, you know, they just were always putting rocks places. But then I thought, well, we, we have some fascination with rocks as well. I mean, to show our love for people, what do we do? We give them a rock in jewelry. I'm just curious how many of us, how many of us would actually admit that we had a pet rock back in the 70s. Can I see a, a show of hands? Now, that was a low-maintenance pet. Think about it. Totally unlike the beagle and the two guinea pigs that we bought this week. Thank you, Pullins, for uh, showing one to uh, Casey. We, um, when you have a rock, there's no, no maintenance. I mean, you don't have to feed it. You don't have to walk it. You know, I mean, if you do, that's a little strange. And uh, no expectations at all. It's there when you need it, but it doesn't need anything from you. I never had a pet rock, or at least not one of the official variety. But growing up in Germany, I had a couple of friends, uh, Dennis and James Cunningham, and uh, we used to play along a creek there in this little village called Grossgerau. And one day, uh, something large and white came floating down uh, the, the river, and we were intrigued by what it was. We thought at first it was some styrofoam, but with some sticks, we captured it and pulled it ashore and discovered that it was hard like a rock. It was, uh, it was rather firm, and it had little, uh, little holes in it that looked like air pockets, and this rock was just floating down the, the creek, and I'd never seen a rock float before, and, and we played with it most of the afternoon, amazed at its buoyancy, and then we had to decide what to do with it. And I was sort of the ringleader, and so I took it home without asking my mother and put it in one of my uh, drawers, in the chest of drawers. And then I took out my World Book Encyclopedia, and I read about pumice, which is a, a type of rock made up of cool lava, and the air inside it makes the rock float. I didn't know if it was volcanic. I never saw a volcano in Germany that I can recall, but the rock became a sort of toy. Um, and every once in a while, my friends would say, hey, can you bring the rock over, and we'll go play in the creek. And we would pull it out and go play with the rock, and then when we were tired of it, we'd just put it away, and I think I packed it in a box. I'm pretty sure they brought it back to the United States. In fact, I'm not sure where it is today. Maybe it's up in my mom's attic with my brother's Star Wars figures. Um, I'm not sure. But in Joshua, on a number of occasions, they, they made a point through stones. They stacked them in remembrance for what God had done. First, when they crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Later, they stoned Achan and they covered him with rocks. They did the same to the village at Ai after they destroyed it. Then when they defeat the five Amorite kings, uh, they roll a stone in front of the cave and then they roll it out before they defeat them. And 
And at the very end of the book, the passage I want to read with you tonight, Joshua takes a stone, and in a, a sign of covenant renewal at Shechem, he, he told the people that this stone had ears to hear what they would say. It had eyes to see, and it would bear witness to the commitment they were making and whether or not they kept that commitment. Would you open your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 24, verse 14? I'll read through verse 28. Let's stand together. Joshua 24, verse 14. Joshua says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God Himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you're witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said, to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. At the end of Deuteronomy, where we left off some weeks ago, Moses lays his hands on Joshua's head. And the Scripture says, Joshua received a spirit of wisdom because Moses, the man of God, had laid his hands on him. It's not unlike what we do when we... Uh, ordain people into the diaconate or into ministry. It's a way of saying, we're praying for you. We're blessing you. We're asking that the Spirit of God would give you wisdom. And Joshua needed wisdom. The first thing we read in the book of Joshua is God saying to Joshua, 
Moses is dead. My servant Moses is dead, and now I'm going to use you. And I want you to know that you don't have to be afraid because the same way I was with Moses. And remember now, Joshua was an eyewitness, not only in battle, but he went to the tent of meeting and he watched Moses go inside and meet God face to face. And what God says to him is, you don't have to be afraid. Now, there's some fearful things that lie ahead of you. The, the, the ri- River Jordan is going to be at the flood stage when I ask you to cross it. And there are going to be some fierce and formidable enemies on the other side of the Jordan River. But you don't ever have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of the Israelite people. They may turn on you as they sometimes turned on Moses. But you don't have any reason to fear because I am Yahweh The Lord is with you, and my presence will be enough to sustain you for your whole life. And as we read the book of Joshua, we encounter some really interesting people, people like like Rahab, who uh, is a a prostitute in the city of Jericho, and she and and her life and her family are spared through a, a scarlet cord that is descended from the window when they destroy the city of Jericho. We read of stories of... uh, of the defeat of Jericho and uh, the way that God overcame all of Israel's enemies and how God fought for them. And then we read about uh, the the little episode at Ai and how the people of Israel who had just defeated the big city of Jericho were defeated by the little town of Ai because of disobedience in their midst, because of Achan's choices. We, We remember the moment that Joshua was preparing for the first battle. And he looked up and saw an incredibly powerful warrior. And he said with trembling lips, whose side are you on? Because whichever side you're on, I want to be on that side. And, and the captain of the, the Lord's army said, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. I'm not on your side, but you need to be sure that you're on my side. And Joshua wins the battle, and he defeats the five Amorite kings. And we learned about Caleb this morning. If you want to see an outline of the book of Joshua, the the first uh, 12 chapters are about the conquest of the land. And then the the remaining chapters through about 22 are about the distribution of the land to the various tribes. And then in chapters 23 and 24, Joshua gives these final speeches. And what you'll notice about about Joshua before he says, choose this day whom you will serve, is that God has already made his choice, that he has chosen Israel to be his people, and he wants them to serve him, and he wants them to remember that he is their God. And it's not just for their sake. Even from the very beginning, in Joshua chapter 4, we hear God say, you stack up these stones, everybody, every tribe, take one stone from the middle of the river. As you walk across the Jordan on dry ground, just the way your ancestors walked across the Red Sea, the way your parents and grandparents came through, God has done the same thing for you. The same God is with you. And you pick up a stone and you stack it on the other side of the river. And I was thinking, if you were a person who was born in Israel after Joshua's death, you might just walk around and look around and you might say, now why are those rocks standing there beside the river? Or you might go down in the valley where uh, Achan and his family were buried and say, why are those rocks there? Or you might go and and look at the gate of the city of what used to be I and say, why are the rocks stacked outside the gates? Or you might come to this place where Joshua led the people literally to cut a covenant with God, to make a covenant. Probably there was some sacrifice and they cut a covenant there. They made 
an agreement there with God. And he reiterated the law to them. And he reminded them that their story was God's story. And he was inviting them to choose. But before he ever invited them to choose, he said, did you know God has chosen you? He has chosen you to be his very own people. And the real trouble you're going to face is that there are going to be idols in the land that we go and encounter. We'll, we'll encounter the gods of those people. But you had gods even across the river. And you had gods back in Egypt. And there were, there were gods on the other side of the Jordan. There will be the Amorite gods in this land. But God will not share your devotion. He wants your exclusive commitment to Him. He, he requires it. And I want you to choose today. You remember what He said. As for me, I'll speak for myself and I'll speak for my household. We're going to serve the Lord. But you're going to have to choose for yourselves. And predictably, the children of Israel say, Oh, we're going to serve the Lord. We're just like you. We want to serve the Lord. And He says, Okay, well then go ahead and get rid of the idols that are in your pockets. Get rid of the ones you've got with you right now. Let's throw those away, and then you can seriously do business with God. And by the way, he said, I don't think you understand. You can't really serve the Lord. That's a terrible thing for a preacher to say to a congregation. He said, you can't serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. And if you choose to continue to sin He's not going to forgive that, and you're going to bear the responsibility. And the same God who's been incredibly good to you throughout your whole holy history is the very same God who's going to hold you accountable for what you do. So whatever you do, it's as if Joshua was saying, don't take this lightly. Take this seriously. And Joshua's dilemma is the dilemma of every spiritual leader in our world. Whether you lead a congregation or a Sunday school class or a Bible study, whether you shepherd a group of people as a deacon or as a minister in this congregation, or whether you're a parent or a grandparent and you have some sphere of influence on others. And the dilemma is, if you're a follower, if you're a sincere, fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, what you want is that group of people who are under your influence to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as well. You would do anything to get them to do that because you want that more than anything. But you know that even if they say, I'll follow the Lord, it's, it's not done. It, it's, our testimony is never safe until we get home, until we see the Lord face to face. And so we, we pray for and we, we counsel and we challenge and we, we plead with those whom we love to be followers. This is Joshua. He's just like a father, just like a pastor, just like me tonight saying, whatever you do, devote yourself fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to do that, you'll have to forsake a bunch of idols along the way. And you'll have to decide to follow the Lord. First, he says, you'll, you'll have to forsake your idols. And and the truth is, they had a whole smorgasbord of idols to choose from. When he says the gods beyond the river, he's talking about those, those gods that, um, of Babylon. Back before they crossed the Euphrates River, back before Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, there were all kinds of gods there, and it would be possible to, to try to serve those gods. Or they could try to serve the Egyptian sun god, Ra, or or they could serve Moloch of the Amorites, the one who said, you must sacrifice your firstborn child to me. They, they could choose to serve any number. Later they would encounter the, the Philistine god Dagon, the sort of fish-faced god. And they could have chosen to follow the Canaanites god Baal, the god of fertility. And they all had their sensual gods. And, and you look at that and you just realize we live in that same kind of world. 
I know we think that's all very primitive, but, but Calvin said our hearts are idol-making factories. Read Richard Foster's uh, little book on idolatry. I think he calls it sex, money, and power. Our pastor, uh, Lester Collins, uh, says that his, his father used to say to him, how are you doing with relationships and money? Those two issues can be real issues in our lives. And you add to that the issue of power. It's, it's, it's uh, sex and shekels and stomach. There are all kinds of things that we can worship. We can worship uh, football, family, and the firm. We can worship any number of idols in this world. We can even make idols of our families and our children. G.K. Chesterton ruled against, uh, he spoke against that. He said, if you say your children rule and kids rule and whatever my kids want whenever they want it, you will reap bitter consequences for that. There are all kinds of idols in this world. And I invite you to forsake those idols. And if you say to me, I'll push back like Joshua. If you say, no, pastor, we're going to serve the Lord. In 2010, we're going to serve the Lord. Okay, can we just get rid of the idols that are in your pockets right now? Can we just, I'm not talking about anything specifically tangible in your pockets, but those things that are so important to you that every spare moment you have, your thoughts go to that. For some of us, athletics, sports can become that kind of challenge. For others, it's uh, the, the narcissism, the resident narcissism. All the idols kind of come back to that worshiping. God made us in His own image, and we want to return the favor. We want to... Make him after our image. We want God to be the kind of God who likes the people we like and hates the people we hate and does what we want and gives us what we want. A sort of lucky rabbit's foot God that will give us good luck if we go to church. For heaven's sake, God ought to make sure that we get what we want when we want it. The television can become an idol. Dare I say the computer and internet can become obsessive. Even social networking. One of our young people was off at college this year and and she decided that for 40 days she would not uh, do anything on Facebook. And for some of us to make that kind of commitment would be an enormous challenge. I've already decided I'm not watching American Idol this year. I'll just confess to you. I've enjoyed watching the music. But you know, any show that's called Idol, and then I, I have serious questions about the judges these days. I don't know. I just, I struggle with all of that. And I, you know, I used to say that would be harder for me to give up for Lent than, than chocolate. But I, I tell you, I, I, I'm giving that up. And I just want to say to you, anything that you think about in your Idol moments Whatever you give your devotion to, whatever is most important to you, whatever makes you angry, if you you can't control that, that to you is an idol and beware of that because as he said, our God is a jealous God. He doesn't share well. He's not interested in you being partly devoted to him and partly devoted to your work and partly devoted to your recreation. He wants you to be fully devoted to him. And out of that love relationship with him, all manner of good things will flow into your life. But Joshua sets the example for them and says, I'm not following any idols. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you have to love that sort of devotion to the Lord. I wonder if you could say tonight, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. He's going to be first in my life. I will choose to follow him above all else in my life. Who speaks for your spirit? You know, the group Mercy Me sings that song, I am spoken for. Well, we are spoken for. 
Christ must be first and foremost in our lives. When he said, follow me, the disciples left the boats, they left their nets, they left their families, they left everything to follow him because by comparison to him, nothing, nothing at all was as important as relationship with him. And I invite us to return to that kind of devotion to God where we can say with Joshua, as for me, I've made my decision. I am spoken for. My first love, first and foremost in my life, is relationship with God. I love Him more than family, more than friends, more than finances, more than than fun, more than anything else in my life. I love God. Love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Would you make that kind of commitment? And then when we make that commitment, then it isn't far behind that, that we, we speak for our families and we say, I want my family to follow the Lord as well. And for some of us, if we were going to be serious about following the Lord and getting our families to follow with us, we would have to make some changes in our lives. I read about Dr. Um, Dr. Paul Faulkner who says... Uh, I'm leaving Steelcase to put the balance back in my life, this president of Steelcase who resigned. Since rejoining the company five and a half years ago, the time I've had to devote to family, personal interests, and spiritual growth has gradually diminished, and I now find the only way to regain that balance is to leave the company and sway the pendulum back the other way. And this is what he said, this is the right time for me to do this. I'm 43 years old. Isn't that scary? I'm 43 years old. My children are young. And they will not be young again. And I wonder if it isn't us, then who will lead our families to commitment to the Lord? Socrates said, Oh, fellow Athenians, why do you turn and scrape every stone looking for wealth and pay so little attention to the children to whom you must one day entrust it all? We've already seen in Joshua 7 the danger of a family member named Achan who chooses not to obey God and jeopardizes the lives of his whole family. I tell you, in our Bible readings, I've been reading in Job as part of our reading. And and I came to that passage again where Job sacrifices every evening on behalf of his children just in case they've been displeasing to the Lord. Now, the truth is there comes a point in our lives like Job when our kids are up and out and, and our grandchildren perhaps are up and out and, and they're making choices and we really, we have less control over them than we wish we had, less control over them than we think we have. But one thing we can do for our families is pray for them. And I read that about Job again and I thought every one of us ought to be the family priest. This is the only influence sometimes that we have over our kids anymore is that we pray for them and uh, we tell them we pray for them. We tell them when we pray for them so that they know that they have been prayed for. I think there's some accountability in that. I remember coming home as a high school student and my mother, it's actually a college student, my first summer home, and my mom was there reading the Scriptures and praying. And I'd say, what are you doing, Mom? She said, I've been praying for you this evening. That's real accountability. I appreciated that. And I want to offer that same to my family as well. At the same time, we understand as we're praying for them and as we're lifting them up to the Lord that we can say, not only as for me, but as for my house, I'm going to lead them to serve the Lord. And this household idea extends pretty far. Think about the Jewish family and then the the clan and then the tribe and then the nation. It extended way out there. I, I met a family after church last night and they introduced themselves to me and they said, we have 60 children, 60 children. 
I said, really? I thought it was a joke. They said, no, our family owns an orphanage in Guatemala, and we have 39 kids there. And then the caretakers who live there, they just had a baby, so we sort of count that baby as well. And then between us, we've just married, but between us, we have a number of kids and then a number of grandkids. And if you add them all up, here's how you can tell how many kids you have. They said, how many people do you buy Christmas presents for? We bought for 60 kids this year. We have 60 children. When they first said 60, Larry, I was thinking, man, we need to get these people in Sunday school. I mean, immediately, think about the growth of our church. Just one family could make a huge difference. But then I thought about the difference we want to make in the lives of our kids. And every one of us has a, a sphere of influence through children, through, through contacts. I am so grateful. I don't know if it takes a village to raise uh, children, but I tell you, it does take a church. And I can't think of any church I would rather be a part of than this one. Because uh, in times of challenge with our, our children, we find great encouragement and we find prayer support and we find others who are loving and encouraging. And I think the, uh, the stretch of Tallowood reaches uh, beyond this church, beyond these walls, beyond this city. It reaches all the way across our state and perhaps we would say even uh, to various states in our country. So who would you speak for? As for me, as for my house. Listen to what they say in verse 18. As for us, we too will serve the Lord. They don't say we might or we could or we should. We will serve the Lord. And that's when Joshua says, yeah, I don't think you understand. You are not able to serve the Lord. I mean, you think you are, but you're not, he says. Because what you think serving the Lord means, you can continue to dabble with your idols and still be faithful to God. But it doesn't work that way. You, you can't live that way because our God is just not that kind of God. And I think what, what Joshua is really trying to do, he's not trying to talk them out of loving God. He's trying to show them just what kind of exclusive commitment God would ask of them. And I read this this week and I was thinking about Bonhoeffer back during the days of the Nazi rule when he had been arrested for that and he was in prison. He eventually lost lost his life there at Flossenburg, but while he was there, he wrote a book and talked about the Sermon on the Mount and cheap grace, and how sometimes we say to people, oh, just serve the Lord. It's easy to become a Christian. Just, just, just come to the church and join and be baptized, and then you're a Christian. You can do about whatever you want to do, just as long as you, you walk the aisle and walk through the water, and, and MacArthur, John MacArthur, has called that easy believism, and I just want to say to you, to the extent that we teach people that you can easily become a follower of Jesus Christ and receive Him as your Savior and accept Jesus and then do whatever in the world you want to do for the rest of your life, I'm not sure we're doing a real service to the kingdom of God by making it sound like you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and still live however in the world you want to live. We used to be critical of those who would, who would go and make a confession once a week and then would do whatever they wanted to do the rest of, of the week. But I tell you, that's not exclusive to any single group of people. And you and I could get caught up in that as well. I received an email this week which talked about how easy evangelism has created great problems for Christianity in the United States because a lot of people say they're followers of Jesus who are not, by the evidence of their lives, followers of Jesus Christ. And becoming a Christian is not easy fire insurance. Becoming a Christian is not easy because God is not like the pretend gods of the world around us. He's not a rock that you can pull out and then put back in the chest of drawers when you're tired of Him. He's not a God who will be trifled with. He's the God of everything, everywhere, 
everyone. He's a holy God. He's other. He's set apart. He's, it's not just that he's moral. It's just that there's no other God like him. There's no other God. He's jealous. That doesn't mean he's petty, but he anticipates the exclusivity of our love for him. I was listening to David Crowder's new song that says, you are jealous for me. Listen to these words. We in Houston can appreciate this. He says, you love like a hurricane, and I'm the tree bending beneath the weight of your glory. And then he sings, oh, How he loves us. How he loves us. He says he will not forgive. I read about this this week. Some would say, well, this is hyperbole. You know, of course our God is the God who forgives. It's his nature to forgive. But what he means is you can't take forgiveness for granted. You can't take grace for granted and say, well, you know, I like to sin and God likes to forgive, so we've got a deal. No, it doesn't work that way. His very holiness, his very love, his very kindness, his patience, his tolerance, his kindness are leading us to repentance. And he wants us to turn our hearts back to him so that we can say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tim Kimmel has six individually framed pictures across the upper shelf of his roll top desk at work. On the one side is Jameson Memorial Hospital there. It's the picture of the hospital in which he was born. And on the other side is the picture of the local cemetery. And there's a, there's a tombstone there, and you can't miss the name Kimmel written on it. Many generations of his family have been buried in that plot. And in between those two pictures are the pictures of his wife and his three children. He said, it's just a reminder to me from God. This is where you came in, and this is where you're going out. And these four pictures in the middle, these four people, are the direct, under the direct influence of your spiritual life. So take your walk with God seriously. We, we need accountability. It's why I think, in, in part, it's when we look at the ring on our fingers, we remember the commitment we made before God and those witnesses. Uh, there are uh, images of accountability in our lives. And That's what that rock was. That rock that he put up at Shechem was his way of saying, every time you see this rock, you remember that you and your families decided to serve the Lord. Like my friend Calvin Miller said, I have to have God. And I'd really like to have my wife and my kids. And everything else is negotiable. Would we tonight simply say, as for me, I will serve the Lord and receive Christ as our Savior and as our Lord and commit ourselves to follow Him? Or would we, maybe this evening, take our spouse's hands in our own and pray and recommit our homes to God? And perhaps we would kneel down by our children's beds tonight and pray with them. Look, if God is our rock and we've put Him on the shelf, maybe we need to pull Him out. Maybe we need to get Him out of the spiritual attic of our lives because our God is not a recreational rock. He's the rock of reckoning a stone of accountability like that rock that they put up at Shechem. He bears witness to our commitment to Him. He remembers what we promised to Him. And if you need a rock, you can just drive down my street if you want to. Or I suppose any rock will do. But Jesus said if we keep our voices silent, if we become as dumb as a rock then the very rocks will testify to the greatness of our God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Our rock and our redeemer, we come to you and ask, O God, that you would remind us again who you are 
And as best we can, Lord, we would put you first in our lives. As much as we can influence our families, Lord, we would say to them, we want you to walk with the Lord. And tonight, Lord, we recommit ourselves as a church family. With gratitude, Lord, we celebrate tonight all that you have done. We celebrate one of your great saints, St. Barbara, to us, who has served you well. And we read, even in these verses that I read, 13 times, Joshua talks about serving the Lord. Barbara has shown us the way. Countless others show us the way, Lord. We want to show the way to others so that all who come behind us may find us faithful to our faithful God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.